Hey, buddy, do you want to say a few words about this show before uh, people give it a listen? Yeah, I want to encourage everybody, if they want to uh, to learn more about the uh, Albums Are Dead podcast, to go to albumsaredead.com or visit us on twitter.com slash albumsaredead, on Facebook, again, slash albumsaredead, and uh, where else? We're on Instagram, uh, and if you look for Albums Are Dead on Instagram, how about that? We'll also be there. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. On most podcatchers, if you type in Albums Are Dead, uh, you're going to find us. Tell me, uh, do we make money doing this show? We do not make any money doing this show, and uh, all the songs that we play on the show are for preview purposes only, so make sure to go and support the artists. Even if they don't need support, it's still the right thing to do. Go uh, stream their music legally or buy the tracks, because uh, we want to keep above board, folks. All right, folks. uh, With all that being said, I think we should get to our episode. What do you think? Let's do it! On the last album, Synchronicity, by that time it felt to me that it was Sting's band. During the tenth sessions for their fifth album, sibling rivalry degenerated into something more destructive. A black spot on the it, it was really quite nasty. The guys could hardly be in the same room together. Synchronicity was just miserable all the way down. We fought all the time. And the fighting was just really ugly, just like trying to destroy each other's, you know, self-esteem. That's when we just hated each other. There were a couple of moments of mean-spiritedness, I suppose. Once we got on the road with the tour, things simmered down a little bit, because we really did still enjoy the gigs. Angry as he was, he loved it that he was with a band that was kicking ass. Uh, albums are dead. Hello. Ah, oh, gonna talk so much about fighting today. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Egos and fighting and frustration, but also uh, a pretty fantastic album, at least parts of it. <laughs> yes. As, yes, absolutely. As we go over synchronicity uh, by the police, and uh, I'm taking the lead this week. My name is Slip. <laughs> yes. How's it? How's it going, Slip? Slip with five eyes. Slip. If I am at megamix.com on the fucking Twitter machine. So, uh, yeah. Uh, How's it going, everybody? It's uh, very excited about this week's show. Yeah, episode 34. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, last week we did Nirvana's Nevermind and spent the whole week uh, getting praise as usual. Uh, crazy oh. week of, of just, like, what what was your what was the comment that touched you the most? There was someone who was, uh, was about to kind of uh, write me into their will. And I used to say, like, listen, you got to give it to charity because I'm classic. <laughs> That's so good of you. <laughs> uh, so I guess we'll just uh, dive right into this one. What do you say? Uh, All right, we just got to go for it. Yeah. But, I, uh, you know what? Before, you know what? Listen, I've been meaning to ask you every week that we do this. And uh, before you get into the album, I, I got to ask. Okay. I've never asked this before, but what made you choose this this particular album? Uh, I'm a big police fan. Uh, I mean the band. <laughs> fucking cop lover. Yeah, yeah. You know the institution. I mean, you know, there are some there are some fucking cop lovers out there on Twitter. Let me tell you. But oh, uh, Jesus Christ. But uh, I am a big fan of uh, the band, the Police, and mm-hmm. uh, this album was obviously a monster. I actually kind of 
uh, went through all of them and was like, which one should I do? But I feel, felt like going with the most obvious one, the biggest yeah. seller, the one with the mm. biggest hit, and mm. uh, also because, obviously, the story. And as you heard in the intro, uh, we are not getting along at this point, and we will talk about it. Oh, so good. Um, my follow-up question. Yes. Have you seen the police? The answer is, I have seen the police. Uh, they did a reunion tour, which we'll talk yes. about, in yes. 2007, and I saw their show at in St. Paul. Nice. Uh, and what a tour it was. Uh, they made a lot of money on that tour. All about the money, brother. <laughs> um, so, also, uh, I'm yep. going to ask myself a question. <clears throat> okay. Why did I choose this album? <laughs> uh so I picked this one because... Didn't uh, I ask you that question? I asked you that question. Oh, wait. Did you say why did I... Oh, sorry. What is my relationship with this album? That that should be... There. Sorry. Oof. Uh, so... so when, words in my mouth. So when I was... Um, when I was about... I guess I would have been 16 or 17 uh, mm-hmm. years old. Uh, you know, I obviously knew about the big police songs, but didn't know anything else about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was in a I was in a number of uh, bands when uh, I was in high school. Now, not bands like rock bands. No, 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 no. Uh, I was in concert bands, yes. uh, and orchestras and pipe bands. And uh, excuse me, jazz band and vocal jazz. Yes, <laughs> uh, can't forget the jazz band with the. Uh... With the tenor sax stylings of OneMegabix.com. <laughs> so one of the bands that I was in that wasn't in our high school was a youth band that uh, was oh. uh, ran out of Elmwood High School. Yes! And yes! They, and they did a uh, kind of this weekender uh, up at Camp Arness. So, oh, no. so we were up at Camp Arness and all kind of bunking in this room. And some of the dudes who I was up there with were like, super into the police like fucking love them so that's all we listened to all weekend long was the police and so from that point on i was like well i should uh i should get into this and the police um they have a compilation that came out called message in a box Mm -hmm. and so i believe it was at what was the name what's the name record exchange sound exchange the one that's right by u of uh u of w that, sound exchange. Yeah, the yes. sound exchange. Uh, I ended up buying a used copy of Message in a Box there, and so that, that gives you the whole catalog. That's fantastic. And so that's how uh, I then started listening and got into the Can police. Can I ask a follow-up question to your own question to yourself? Yes, you may. Uh, Camp Arness, any, any sexy shenanigans? There were zero sexy shenanigans. <laughs> it was maybe the least sexy band trip of all time, and, and we've been on some very unsexy band trips. <laughs> oh, we have. Uh, so no, nothing at all, unfortunately. Uh, what? Tell me. Um, I may as well ask you: Have you seen them? <laughs> I have not seen the police. Clearly, uh-huh. um, I listen. I, I, I've, I've gathered up uh, police songs in my library over the years uh, as an adult. That's really the extent of my fandom. I really do enjoy this album, though, and uh, I'm. I, I found it to be. Um, I really like listening. I like listening to some, especially on the show, where ones I haven't really gotten into the full album and listening to the whole package. Yeah, so that this was uh, this was fun for me. Um, as far as the, um, as far as some of the the members of the band, I mean, as far as Sting goes, I mean, you know, like um, 
uh, wasn't really into Sting very much, and but I I was oddly disappointed in the um, in the in the kind of way they sent him off at WrestleMania 31. <laughs> I was just about to say my favorite Sting moment, I would say, was when he had that 45-minute title match with Ric Flair at the first clash <laughs> of the champions. Woo! It's showtime, folks! Ah, uh, Sting. What a goofy name. Uh, yep. <clears throat> I love how there's a Sting singer and a Sting wrestler. That's fantastic. Yes, like and, two... and, and that Sting the wrestler owns the name. <laughs> Does he? Yes. Oh, that's fucking great. Uh... So let's talk a little bit about uh, this band, shall we? Yes. Uh, this is all from the Wiccai. Uh The okay. police were a British rock band. They formed in London in 1977. Uh, they consisted of three dudes. We had Sting on lead vocals, bass, guitar, and he was pretty much writing everything. Yes. <clears throat> Andy Summers on the guitar and Stuart Copeland on drums and percussion. Should note that within uh, uh, about a month from now, uh, there will be a three Funko Pop set of the police coming out. You, I assume, are jizzing your pants. Uh, it's quite likely if I can get all three of them. I'm not getting just Sting because fuck that. But fuck uh, that. You need to have a. You need to have that little drum kit that he's standing behind. <laughs> I have seen it. It looks good. Uh, so Sting were general. Uh, Sting. Oh, behind, sorry. The police were generally regarded as one of the first uh, real mainstream new wave groups. Uh, yes. And their music had a lot of punk, jazz, and reggae, which, oh, yes. which is a little interesting. Some 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 of that white reggae. Uh, yeah. Uh, so their first album was released in 1978, uh, Outlandos d'Amour. Uh, it reached number six on the, in the UK. Their second album, Regatta de Blanc, became their first uh, of four consecutive UK number one albums and uh, mm -hmm. had one of their biggest singles, Message in a Bottle, which was their first UK number one. Yes. Uh, their next two albums were called Zenyatta Mondata in 1980 and Ghost in the Machine. They're releasing an album a year, so they're just going crazy. And, oh, yeah. Uh, finally, uh, they take a two years two years off between albums and they release their final album, Synchronicity, in 1983. And this album is a, a monster hit. Uh, I'm just going th over to the uh, Synchronicity page. But uh, it topped the album charts in the UK and the US 17 non-consecutive weeks. Uh, it is basically the album that pushes Thriller out of the top spot in the uh, US Yikes. charts. Uh, nice. It won a Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. Uh, in 2013, Synchronicity reached number 13 in BBC Radio 2's Top 100 Favorite Albums, which was a poll voted on by 100,000 people. Uh, the TV network VH1 in 2001 named it the 50th greatest album of all time. In 2000, The Virgin All-Time Top 1,000 Albums rated Synchronicity at number 91. Nice. Um, in 2010, Consequence of Sound composed a list of the top 100 albums ever, which this album is listed at number 37. Rolling Stone ranked it at number 455 on their 500 greatest albums of all time, and that was in 2003. Nine years later, it would be pushed down by three spots to 448. Mm, okay. Uh, and so on and so on. Uh, in terms of album sales, it is also mm -hmm. a monster. Uh, it has sold over 8 million copies in the U.S., though really, I think the real number is much, much bigger than this. It's one of the, uh, it's one of the yeah, best-selling albums of all time, right? Some of those numbers, 
weren't weren't quite as uh, there's 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 the numbers and there's the claim numbers and the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, when you look at uh, again peak positions on the weekly charts, this this album hit number one in Australia, Canada, Italy, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States. And again, in the <laughs> United States, it stayed in the top position for uh, many many weeks. Mamma mia, it's a good album. Oh, it's a great album, huh? Yay! <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's a, a little bit about how well the uh, album did. Uh, mm. Specifically about this album, it is released on June 17th, 1983. Uh, it, of course, contains uh, numerous singles, uh, four in total, Every Breath You Take, King of Pain, Wrapped Around Your Finger, and Synchronicity 2. Uh, the album's title and much of the material for the songs were inspired by um, Arthur Kostler's "The Roots of Confidence" or "The Roots of Coincidence." And at the 1984 Grammy Awards, the album was nominated for five awards, including Album of the Year, and it ended up winning three of them. At the time of its release and following its tour, the Police were, and I'd say rather rightfully, hailed as the biggest band in the world. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. At that time, in terms of a band, maybe not artist, but uh, certainly uh, as a band. Right on. Uh, so as we mentioned, the uh, the police have a lot of reggae influence in uh, mm -hmm. some of their earlier music. Uh, this album has a big reduction in reggae influence on it. Um, yeah. And instead is using a lot of synthesizers. And uh, at times this drives entire songs like uh, Synchronicity 1 and wrapped around your finger. There is still some world music influence in songs like Tea in the Sahara and Walking in Your Footsteps. Uh, the album is recorded by the three band members in separate rooms. <laughs> for nice. the most part. Uh, Stuart Copeland uh, with his drums in the dining room, Sting in the control room, and Andy Summers in an actual studio. Uh, one of the co-producers on this, we've talked about him before, Hugh Padham, who uh, also yes. worked with Phil Collins. Yeah. Uh, uh, said and Pete. That, yes, and Pete said that this uh, separation was done for a couple of reasons uh, to obtain the best sound for each instrument and for social reasons. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Padham also Padham also stated that subsequent overdubs were done with only one member in the studio at the time, and the overdubs were done in Le Studio in Quebec City during January yes. to February of 1983 during the record. Oh. During the recording of Every Breath You Take, Sting and Copeland came to blows with each other, and yes. Padham nearly quit the project. So we are not getting along with each other. Can you imagine that that the the, the fucking little little fight that what it looked like? I bet you it was amazingly bad. Just like Sting and, and Copeland getting all slappy with each other. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when you type in "Why did the police break up?", you got a couple of things that pop up. Oh come on, give it to me. Uh, this is from a Rolling Stone article released in 2013 called The 10 Messiest Band Breakups, <laughs> uh, specifically about the police. Uh, the police were formed in 1977 by drummer Stuart Copeland, along with school teacher Gordon Sting Sumner and, <laughs> and guitarist Andy Summers. Within a year, they were rock's next big thing, but tensions began bubbling over as Sting took over the band. The others began to feel like his employees, and they began fighting like crazy, even as the band got bigger and bigger. Oh my god, I love it already. In his 2006 memoir, One Train Later, Summers recalled the fight while the band recorded their 1981 LP, Ghost in the Machine. Sting goes berserk on me, he said. 
calling me every name under the sun with considerable vehemence, leaving everyone in the room white-faced and in shock. Sting summed up the group's problem in a 2007 interview with Rolling Stone. He said, we didn't have a great deal in common. He said, we were in different generations, in Andy's case, welded together by a flag of convenience. Part of the frustration was that Stuart and Andy were driven to write. It's difficult to tell somebody it's not a good song, and it's usually me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Sting pulled the plug in 1984 after a long stadium tour in support of their massive album, Synchronicity. It wasn't my intention to punish Stuart and Andy in any way, Sting said. I was following my instincts. Uh, if you, <laughs> if you go to wisegeek.com, mm. uh, there is, uh, a little bit lengthier an article, uh, of what yeah. happened, but again, it says here, many of the problems that emerged as the members became world famous in particular with their fourth album, Ghost in the machine are attributed to the fame attracted by sting as is the case with many rock bands. Lead singers tend to get more notice and are often credited with the band's success. Sting had also proven he was a gifted lyricist and composer and had provided the band with most of their hits. Uh, Sting, or sorry, tension about the artistic direction between Sting and Copeland began to mount, which was made apparent with several public brawls. For Copeland, arguably one of the most talented rock percussionists of his age, Sting's increasing control proved challenging, constant infighting despite great commercial success, and little compromise by any of the band members emerged and became almost as famously noted as were the band songs. So, what happens to these other two guys? I mean, obviously, Sting goes on to a a, a uh, you know a good career as a solo artist. What about these other two jobbers? Uh, let's see. So Summers uh, ends up uh, doing a couple of his own uh, 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 his own things. He composed for films, so he composed for uh, Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> nice. So you know, not too bad. He did a couple of duet albums. Uh, and but you, uh, come on. And he did, he did a lot of jazz albums, but I mean, you know, nothing. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Stuart Copeland, I don't know nearly as much, so I'm going to the Wiccai. But come on. I mean, even without looking. Nothing. I mean, talk about like just overstating your importance. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, the, the police were essentially staying, right? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you just got to like, you know, suck it up. Yeah, right. Like you're you you're riding the dude's coattails. Let's be honest. I mean, they're great musicians. Well, yeah, but doesn't mean you can, you know, front a band and write all the songs. Anyway, I'm just saying. Uh, eventually, what happens is they produce Synchronicity in 1983. After the world tour, they announce that they're going to take a sabbatical. Uh, they do attempt to write a new album, but they shelve it. Uh, they reunited briefly in 1986 to participate in three Amnesty International benefit concerts. Um, and then eventually uh, would reunite again in 2007 for the money. <laughs> All about the money, brother. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's going on there. Uh, I have one more article that was written uh, in the mirror. This is in 2015. It says Andy Summers on Sting and the Police. We were so desirable to girls, but I paid the heavy price. Uh, and then he basically just talks about how they were all kind of dinks. There you go. So I won't uh, I won't get too much more into it there. Uh, okay. The artwork for the album was conceived by Jeff Aeroff and Norman Moore, and there are a total of 36 variations, which you can get. 
Nice. Uh, different arrangements of the color stripes and showing different photographs of the band members. Uh, in the most common version, Sting is reading a copy of uh, a book called Synchronicity. Mm -hmm. uh, on the front cover, along with a superimposed negative image of the actual text of the synchronicity hypothesis. Photo mm -hmm. on the back cover also shows a close-up, but mirrored and upside-down image of, of the book. And the original vinyl release was pressed on audiophile vinyl, which appears black like most records, but when you hold it up to the light, it turns purple. Print style. <laughs> yes! There you go! <laughs> um... So yeah, that's kind of uh, a little bit about the artwork. I, I like the artwork, um, and I like I like the fact that you know I'm sure collectors, a lot of them are trying to get uh, as many uh, as many copies as possible. That's fucking smart. Um, that's about it. I mean, again, other than the fact that it's a massive album, largely written by Sting, the band is mm -hmm. not getting along, but at the same time, they are uh, peaking commercially big time at the point of this album's release, and that's kind of. Uh, where we land in 1983 when this uh, when this album comes out. It was released, by the okay. way, by A&M Records and uh, runs at 39 minutes and 42 seconds, though the CD and cassette version run at 44 minutes and 18 seconds. Ah, a little variation. It's a nice, tidy, little tight time. I love it. There is one track that was released on the cassette and CD that was emitted from um, some of the LPs. So that is why that happens. Yes. Uh, but let's just go right into the track by track. Do it. Here we go. Let's start off with track one. Woo! All right. So the opening track, Synchronicity Roman numeral one. Yes. Uh, this was released in Japan as a single in January of 1983, but it was otherwise uh, not a single. Uh, Synchronicity 1, as well as its more famous counterpart, Synchronicity Roman numeral 2, mm -hmm. features lyrics that are inspired by Carl Jung's theory of synchronicity. Uh, here is, from a source we haven't used before, dictionary.com. Yes! Synchronicity is a concept first introduced... Uh, by analytical physiologist Carl Jung, which holds that events are meaningful coincidences if they occur with no causal relationship, yet seem to be meaningfully related. So there you go. So it, It's so deep. Ah, very deep. When asked on how Synchronicity 1 is connected to Synchronicity 2, or Stuart Copeland said, I've had Sting up against the wall on this issue before, and he point-blank refuses to explain the connection, None of us in the band can even remember which one's which. <laughs> the only way I can keep them straight is that Sync 1 has Sting's cool sequencer part, that dunga dunga dung thing that I to this day get all the credit for. <laughs> People think it's me playing some percussive instrument and I have to put them right. It was real ramalama way of starting our set on tour, though it almost killed me to start with that kind of onslaught every night. The song is fucking fast for the drums. Oh yeah. Uh, it, of course, was the opening track for the band set list during most of the Synchronicity tour. Yep. Uh, songmeanings.com does have some commentary. Not I'm very interested. Um, this one, uh, let's read the comment first. Okay. It says, I never really thought this song was that good until I tried, tried drumming to it. Dang, it's fast the whole way through. His drumming was like the precursor for that new almost offbeat metal stuff. 
This was by a user, Drummer1500. <laughs> yes! So you know, he would know. He would know! Uh, I don't have a heck of a lot else to say about it, but uh, this is uh, Synchronicity 1. Not a bad opening track. I'd never really heard this before. I enjoyed it. I just like the franticness to it. Yeah, yeah. It's got real uh, urgency. Uh, and then we go to track two, and we tone it down right away. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, so the first thing, listen to Sting's voice when he starts singing here. Mm-hmm. Come on, Sting. Like, are you are you being African? Like, what are you doing here? I don't really understand it. Uh, walking in your footsteps. Let me just read some lyrics to you. Yes. Hey, mighty Brontosaurus, don't you have a lesson for us? You thought your rule would always last. There were no lessons in your past. You were built three stories high. They say you would not hurt a fly. If we explode the atom bomb, would they say that we were dumb? Uh, it's so bad. Very typical Sting writing about the state of our pol- uh, politics in the uh, in the eighties, right? Yeah, as 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 stupidly as possible. <laughs> I mean, he's basic again, like uh, trying to teach us lessons. Yep. <laughs> Don't use nukes, everybody. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, let's uh, talk about though what our friends at Song uh, Meanings have to say about this. Please. And uh, for the most part, uh, they get it pretty right. Uh, we have here um, Mark 36, who says, It's obviously a relic from the nuclear age. See Russians, which is another Sting song. Yet its mm-hmm. wisdom carries onward. A somewhat common theme am- among Sting songs, history will teach us nothing, is how we ignore lessons in our past. How does this play out in the terrorism age? A viewing of Steven Spielberg's Munich, I think, provide some ideas <laughs> yes uh there was a reviewer named george sterostin so there is there was some uh user named silly bunny who just kept taking his quotes and putting them in song meetings oh it's fantastic so here's what he had to say and that leaves us with walking in your footsteps which most people hate but i don't understand why Catchy vocal medley. Again, plus Copeland is really going nuts with that electronic percussion set. And the song is not about dinosaurs. It's about people dying out like dinosaurs, which is pretty grim if you ask me. <laughs> so there you go. Walking in your footsteps. It is, listen, the lyrics are trash, but it's a, it's a good little tune. I mean, we're singing about dinosaurs and how they died. And it's like, dinosaurs didn't kill themselves. No. They didn't. Like, they went extinct, but they didn't fuck up. (laughs) So, a little harsh with the dinosaurs. Yes, agreed. Uh, Track three. You got some saxophone there. Saxophone. All right, uh, this song is about Sting questioning his faith in God. He feels like no matter... Oh, by the way, this is uh, by user Ivo Kent on uh, 
yes. song meetings. Okay. He feels like no matter how good he is or how faithful he is, God doesn't seem to notice. He also questions God's priorities when it comes to helping the world. The stanza about the fat man in the garden and the thin man at the gate might be a metaphor for the rich and poor, the rich being the fat man reaping the benefits of the garden, while the thin man is doing all the work protecting the gate. Sting wants God to be closer and to take notice of the world's blatant atrocities. Mm, all right. I, I've heard, I've, I've read worse breakdowns of songs. Sting, of course, played the saxophone on this song. Uh, user Silly Bunny again quotes George Sterostin. <laughs> He says, the critics are right when they pinpoint this song as one of the weakest links on the album, mainly because it shows signs of self-plagiarism. Uh, but they miss one thing, Sting's total self-dedication. It's obviously the most personal and one of the most deeply felt cuts on the album. And while it lacks an immediate hook, it's so distinguishingly, distinguishingly or sorry, disgustingly sincere, I don't have the heart to condemn the song. Besides, shoot, I really dig the bass line. Yes! Uh, you as a bassist, you as a bassist must also enjoy it. <laughs> you know me and my my long career playing play, plucking the strings, the bass. Uh, user yeah. user Doki underscore Pen said, "I listened to this album as a kid, and I'm rediscovering it as an adult. I can't believe I didn't get this song. It was about God when I came here. What until I came here? What a dope! Well, it's called Oh My God. Yeah, I know, right? The fuck." I, I enjoy that the the, the uh, O and Oh My God is just the O, like in O Canada. There's no H. Oh My God. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy song fact Crazy. from that, the Mega Man. That would be the, the greatest takeaway from any episode of Albums Are Dead. Uh, let's go to the next song, the first one not written by Sting. And uh, it's a doozy. Yes. I mean... I'd say right away, like, what the fuck is going on here? Exactly. Uh, so this was written by Andy Summers. Yep. From like so precursor to Weekend at Bernie's. Dude, I got I got to break in for a second. Yep. So you know I'm in my usual spot uh, near Gondola Pizza. There's all this bunny all runs up to the door and is all looking in the window of Gondola. Oh, nice. He wants a pie. Best ever. He wants to get himself a carrot pie. Uh, from Song Facts. <laughs> a bizarre track from the police fifth and final studio album, Mother was written by the group's guitarist, Andy Summers. In his Song Facts interview, Summers explained that the song was inspired by his mum. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> uh, mother... <laughs> Hey, mother. We all have our family situations, and I had a pretty intense mother who was very focused on me, he said. I was sort of his, the golden child, and there I was, sort of fulfilling all of her dreams by being the pop star in The Police. I got a certain amount of pressure from her. Okay. Mother won over Sting, and the song provided a quirky contrast to the other tracks on the set. It was so bizarre and weird compared to everything else that people really liked it, Summers told us. Of course, Summer says that. Yeah, now let's go people to... really liked it. Yeah, well, okay. let, let's... Tell yourself that, buddy. Well, let's see what people on song uh, meanings had to say. Oh. 
User Rick Dad said, This song is sung by Andy Summers and is intended to sound disturbing. I think the only other song by Andy Summers does, uh, that does vocals on is Be My Girl, Sally, which is also about a sexually disturbed man. Get some help, Andy. <laughs> Uh, user Mark36 makes another appearance, and he says, Dismal, the worst police song ever recorded. I guess it somehow plays into the psychological atmosphere of the Synchronicity album, but really, I think it's there to get under the skin. Yes. Uh, George Starosten, of course, via <laughs> Silly Bunny, <laughs> says... <laughs> Andy also gets the bad luck to contribute Mother to this album. A hideous song if there ever was one, and the worst clunker in the band's catalog. The rhythm track itself isn't that bad, and there's no serious problems with the lyrics, until, unless Andy stole the every girl I go out with becomes my mother in the end line from somewhere. It's probably the deepest thought he contributed to the police treasure chest, but Andy simply cannot wail in a paranoid manner. Leave that stuff to John Lennon or Captain Beefheart. Andy, a well-placed scream can be goofy and funny, or it can be scary and creepy, but this is just ridiculous and bleeding on the ears. Okay. Uh, so we're very critical Some there. Harsh words. Strong words for Andy Summers. Strong. Strong, but we... Uh, user Nick WS234 said, The meaning of this song is basically as follows. The idea of putting a song on a great album for the sole purpose of making sure said album is never considered among the greatest albums of all time. Executed with precise perfection. I love it. So That's biting. A control job right there. Uh, so that is Mother. I am not a fan. No. Uh... I, I mean, sometimes I like when people kind of put themselves out there, but I think this song is garbage. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, here is now a song by Stuart Copeland. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to Genius.com. Yes. Uh, we're talking about Miss Gradenko. The last mm. of Stuart Copeland's writing contributions to the police, Miss Gradenko, is a track uh, is uh, a track for of synchronicity, admittedly about forbidden love in a to totalitarian regime. The song features instrumentation and is reminiscent of the police's early material in the verses, including some very heavy hi hat work from Copeland. The choruses follow more of an arena rock format with a sing along chorus. Mm. I'm a big fan of this chorus. Uh, let's go to song meanings. Uh, yes. We have user Silly Bunny. <laughs> yes. Which means, of course, we're going to hear from George Starostin. <laughs> At least Copeland's contribution is thoroughly better. Miss Gradenko is yet another in a series of those lightweight half-comic numbers Stu is famous for. Even if this time it's around, it's kind of uh, disturbing, especially when you hear the grim lyrics like, is anybody alive in here? Nobody but us in here. Can't deny the catchiness of the chorus, though. Not on your life, you can't. And uh, I, I like the song. There we go. Uh, what do you think of this song? I like it. I actually, I actually find this to be one of my more favorite songs on the album. Uh, it's got an interesting feel, and like you talked about that sing-along chorus, I like I like the song. Um, just to follow up on Stuart Copeland, a lot of uh, movie soundtracks, uh, 
post police. Uh, played drums on Red Rain and, and Big Time. So nice. <laughs> uh, also, um, he did the uh, Spiro the Dragon soundtracks for that PlayStation game. PlayStation two weeks in a row. Oh my goodness! Yeah, two, two mentions of the PlayStation. We love vids on this uh, on this show. Yes, we do. Uh, let's, Moving along. Let's go to the closing track on side one, and probably my favorite from this album. All right. We're going back to songs written by Sting. This is Synchronicity, Roman numeral, Roman numeral 2. Yes. Uh, the third single released on October 21st, 1983. It reached number 17 on the UK singles charts and number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 in December of 1983. Uh, Sting explained the theme of the song to Time magazine. He said, Jung believed there was a large pattern to life, that it wasn't just chaos. Our song Synchronicity 2 is about two parallel events that aren't connected logically or causally, but symbolically. At, at Genus.com, yes. they say in this song, a family man's gloomy existence starts to take his toll on a, on, take a toll on his sanity, while many miles away, a monster emerges from a deep lake to terrorize the locals, perhaps inferring when the man gets home this particular day, he will be like a terrifying monster at the family's door, in the book Lyrics by Sting, he said, I was trying to dramatize Jung's theory of meaningful coincidence. Uh, so that's from Genius.com. Cool. Uh, from Song Facts, the music video... Yes! Uh, ...was directed by Kevin Godley and Lol Cream. I just love how Lol is LOL Cream. <laughs> I love how fucking Godley and Cream. Classic. Yep. Who also shot... Was your song Cry? Uh, they have they had a lot of stuff, right? They they did a lot well, of. They were from 10CC, right? Yeah, and then they 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 did their own big. They had their one big track of theirs, "Cry," that ridiculous song, and then they did yeah, a lot of music videos. Uh, they also shot the video for "Every Breath You Take." The Synchronicity Two video was a grand production, with each band member getting his own tower about 25 feet in the air. The area below them was meant to look like a garbage dump from the future, from the future. Ah. On the future. And at one point, it caught fire under Stuart Copeland's tower. The directors made sure to keep rolling film to catch the action. <laughs> Put him in danger. Yeah, Fuck well, for, for the sake of a sexy music video, why not? Well, apparently that was Cream who told the director of photography to keep the cameras rolling. There uh, you go, Cream. Uh, Load Runner from Song Meanings says... The monster is entering the cottage to kill all inside. At the same time, the father is entering the house to kill his family. Hence the synchronicity. After hearing the song umpteen times, reading the lyrics and realizing this, it sends chills down my spine. My spine. Sting is a hell of a lyricist with one hell of imagination. Yeah. Uh, I nailed love, it. I love this track. It's a good It's a great song. That riff is fucking monster. Uh, so we're going to flip this record over, and now we're getting into the absolute monster. Uh, and just so everybody knows, uh, you are playing these on, on the record player. I am. I will Let me flip this record over. In the meantime, while I am turning the record over, let me just read a quote. I have a couple of random quotes, one that I enjoy. Stuart Copeland in 2000 talked about uh, the recording of this album and said, the whole album was recorded in an unbelievably bad atmosphere. We hated each other's guts and we had no respect for each other. 
Actually, I did, but I just felt like a piece of shit. <laughs> He's like Vader in 1998. <laughs> a fat piece of shit. <laughs> All right, the record is turned over, and uh, let's put the needle on it and see what happens. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Put the needle down. All right, there's. I got tons on this, of course. Oh, I'm sure you do. Every Breath You Take, released on May 20th, 1983. Written by Sting, the single was the biggest US and UK hit of 1983, topping the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart for eight weeks. It was the band's only number one hit. And the UK singles charts for four weeks. It also topped Billboard Top Tracks chart for nine weeks uh, in the uh, 26th Annual Grammy Awards. The song was nominated for three Grammys, including Song of the Year, Best Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals, and Record of the Year, and it won in the first two categories. Mm -hmm. It is considered to be the band's signature song, and in 2010 was estimated to generate between a quarter and a third of Sting's music publishing income. Mm, wow. In the 1983 Rolling Stone, critics and readers poll uh, voted it Song of the Year, and again, in the U.S., it was the best-selling single of 1983. It was ranked at number 84 on the Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest songs of all time and is included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. It also ranked at number 25 on Billboard Hot 100's all-time top songs. In 2015, it was voted as uh, by the British public as the nation's favorite 1980s number one poll for ITV. Right on. Um... So Sting and Phil Collins are friends, right? Yes. So I find this interesting. Yeah, come on. Sting wrote the song in 1982 in the aftermath of his separation from Francis Tomlery, Tomlery, of course. At the beginning of the relationship with Trudy Styler, their split was controversial. At the Independent, as the Independent reported in 2006, the problem was he was already married to actress Francis uh, Tomlery, who just happened to be Trudy's best friend. Oh, God damn it. The affair was widely condemned. In order to escape from the public eye, Sting retreated to the Caribbean. He started <laughs> writing the song at Ian Fleming's writing desk at uh, on the Golden Eye Estate in Jamaica. Yes. Uh, Sting later said he was disconcerted by how many people think this song is more positive than it is. He insists it is about the obsession with a lost lover and the jealousy and surveillance that follow. One couple told me, Oh, we love that song. It was the main song played at our wedding. And I thought, <laughs> well, good luck. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it's clearly not a love song. Like, like, a, like, it's clearly not a happy love song. No. The recording process was fraught with difficulties as personal tensions between the band members, particularly Sting and Stuart Copeland, came to the fore. Producer Hugh Padham claimed that by the time the recording, uh, by the time of the recording sessions, Sting and Copeland hated each other with verbal and physical fights in the studio common. So much yes. slappy fights. Yes. The tension almost led to the recording sessions being canceled until a meeting involving the band and the group's manager, Miles Copeland, Stewart's brother, resulted in an agreement to continue. Uh, right. To give the song more liveliness, Padham asked Copeland to record the drum part on the studio's dining in the studio's dining room in order to achieve some special sound effects. The room, however, was so hot that Copeland's drumsticks had to be taped to his hands to avoid slippage. 
Slippage. <laughs> Stuart Copeland had this to say. In my humble opinion, this is Sting's best song with the worst arrangement. I think Sting could have had any other group do this song and would have been better than our version, except for Andy's brilliant guitar part. Basically, there's an utter lack of groove. It's a totally wasted opportunity for our band, even though we made gazillions off of it, and it's biggest hit, It's the biggest hit we ever had. In the words of uh, Sensational Sherry, come on. Come on. <laughs> uh, the music video depicts the band, accompanied by a pianist and string section, performing the song in a darkened ballroom as a man washes the floor-to-ceiling window behind them. Released in the early days of MTV, Every Breath You Take was one of the earliest videos to enter the heavy rotation, a fact that significantly contributed to the popularity of the song. Well, well it, was a, it was three white guys. Of course MTV played it. <laughs> At the time, right? Uh, from Song Facts, police guitarist Andy Summers made a significant contribution to the arrangement of the song. He explained in a record collector interview, without that guitar part, there's no song. That's what sealed it. My guitar completely made it a classic and put a modern edge to it. I actually came up with it in one take. That's because a Sting's demo left a lot of space for me to do what I did. There was no, uh, there was no way I was just going to strum uh, chords through a song like that. You know what? I'm wondering if the interviewer uh, could hear his response over the uh, patting of himself on the back. <laughs> uh, in 1987, Diddy, known as Puff Daddy at the time, yes, sampled this song on "I'll Be Missing You," his 1997 tribute to rapper Notorious B.I.G. And sampling is 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 generous because it's basically <laughs> the song. Sting didn't know about the sample until after the song was released. He ended up making lots of money from it, <laughs> claiming. <laughs> He put some of his kids through college with the proceeds. Nice. Uh, Sting did perform I'll Be Missing You with P. Diddy mm -hmm. at the MTV Mu Video Music Awards, and the two remain friends. Way to go, Diddy. Uh, just a couple of comments from song meetings. Oh, I can only imagine what's going on over there. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Brightside. Okay. With, with a one instead of the first I in Brightside said. And you'll be shocked when you hear, after okay. hearing that name. Very obscure song. Okay. Similar to the killer songs, Andy, You're a Star, and Jenny Was a Friend of Mine. Fuck off! <laughs> First of all, those are similar to this one. First of all. Yep. Because it came, it came decades before. Uh-huh. Fucking idiot. Uh, user Broken Telephone 78 said... If anybody ever stalked me like this, I would punch them in the face. Yes. Uh, Show the world. The only other note that I have, and this was for my own personal, uh, my own personal notes. Yes. I do have to reference my favorite usage of this song, which is when it is mixed with Peter Gunn in the yes. first episode of season three in The Sopranos. Yes. In that Classic. fantastic sequence uh, that they yes. do uh, multiple times in the uh, in the episode. Yes, indeed. Any thoughts on this one? I'm not a huge fan of this song, but I'm not going to deny that it's a monster hit. And it's, uh, you know, a, one of those, like, musically significant tracks. But it's it's a very skippable song for me. But uh, it's got I, it's got a good hook there. Like, the when they get when they kick into kind of the uh, the breakdown, or it's not really the chorus, I guess. But it, that, that part I like. But it's for me, it's fairly middling. Uh, let's go to the next track. All right. Yes. Hear me. Uh, so this is King of Pain. 
such a that's that's as morose as it gets. Like that's you're 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 I'm writing that by a dumpster. I'm the king of pain. <laughs> <laughs> this was the second single in the U.S. That's what you'd post on, on the on the BME zine. I'm the king of pain. That's my user. That's fire. my username. <laughs> Uh, this was released in August of 1983 as the second second single from Synchronicity. Such pricks. Uh, ended up reaching number one in Canada. Nice. On the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, it reached number three. On the Mainstream Rock chart, it reached number one. The U.K. Singles chart only getting to number 17. All right. Uh, it was actually the fourth single released in the U.K., so that's probably some of the reason why. Um Again, written by Sting as a post-separation song from his wife. He's the king of pain. King of pain conjures up symbols of pain and relates to them, uh, <laughs> relates them to a man's soul. I find it interesting that the dude is dating somebody else, and he's the one and that caused, pining. and he's the one that caused all the problems. Yet he's the king of pain. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> king of pain was. Uh, let's see here. Uh, this is Sting talking in the studio radio show. In the studio radio show. He says, Actually, it was something I said. I just left my first wife a very painful break, and I went to Jamaica to try to pull myself together. I was fortunate to be able to go to Jamaica, I have to say, uh, and stayed at this nice house, and I was looking at the sun one day, and I was with Trudy, uh, the woman he left his wife for. <laughs> Oh, come fuck on. Who is now my current wife. And I said, look, there's a little black spot on the sun today. And there's a pause. And I said, that's my soul up there. Jesus Christ. I was full of hyperbole. I said that. I went back in the, and wrote it down on, and uh, and basically wrote some other stuff with it. And that's the song. Ugh. Makes me want to puke. Uh, quick note from Song Facts. Alanis Morissette covered this for her MTV Unplugged album in 1999. It was mm -hmm. released as a single but failed to chart in the US or UK, though it was a minor hit in Brazil and the Netherlands. Nice. Uh, in terms of our friends at Song Meanings. Okay. User, Silly but uh, User Christiana said, yeah, it's basically a guy saying how depressed he is, but it's surprisingly a beautiful song if you really listen. It's about a man saying he's destined to be always hurting, that the pain will never go away, no matter what he does or where he goes. He's asking for somebody to help, but ultimately knows they can't. Song or User Goth Idiot said, This is a song mocking Jesus like most rock music. Um... <laughs> uh, I love this song, uh, though the story behind it makes me want to puke. It's really maddening, but it is a good it is a good track. Uh, let's go to uh, the next track. Yes. Uh, this song is about kids in a band class that can get to the yes. teacher to do whatever they want. Yes. 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 <laughs> There it is. Uh, uh, this is wrapped around your finger. Uh, <laughs> uh, from Song Facts. Written by a sting, this song is about being under the control of another person. For most of the song, the stinger is under the control of a woman who dominates him. At the end, however, he figures out 
He figures her out and turns the tables. The chorus changes from I'll be wrapped around your finger to you'll be wrapped around my finger. He turns the tables and cheats on her. (laughs) Uh, This song also has the term Mephistopheles. Yes, that's right. Uh, Mephistopheles is not your name, is another name for the devil. So there you go. Mephistopheles is not your name. Your name is Mestopheles. (laughs) From the Wiccai. My God, that dude is getting some fucking play on this episode. He sure is. Uh, From the Wiccai, this is the second UK single and the fourth single in the U.S., uh, in the UK, it was out in the summer of 83. In the US, the winter of 84. Sting described Wrapped Around Your Finger as a spiteful song about turning the tables on someone who's been in charge. I guess by leaving her for her best friend. Yes. Like other police songs from this period, it features mythological and literary, uh, literary references. It has a relatively slow, almost foreboding feel in the beginning verses, modulating to evoke a lighter, triumphant feel during the chorus. The music video yes. furthers the urethral feeling of that the song gives off by having footage of the band performing in a candlelit, gloomy room <laughs> interspersed with scenes of Sting running tall, uh, or sorry, run, running among tall candlesticks arranged in a sort of maze. Andy <laughs> Summers is shown playing an acoustic guitar, an instrument not used in any of the police's recordings. <laughs> That's so great. The music on the recording of the video was played fast and the singing was mimed fast. When the music was slowed down to normal speed, the members of the band appear to be moving in slow motion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sting, in a Playgirl interview in 1983, said, uh, It's incredibly atmospheric and I think the set design is brilliant. There's nothing but all those candles, yet it conjures up many different feelings and possibilities about the song. However... (laughs) <laughs> in the book I Want My MTV, highly yes. recommended. Yes, great book. Andy Summers had to say, I never much liked the idea for Wrapped Around Your Finger. No, I was kind of pissed off about that one. I've never <laughs> been much of a fan of that song, actually. Sting got to shoot his part last in the video and made a meal of knocking all the candles out. Fuck him. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, from songmeanings.com. Uh, user Chodius said, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, Chadius, fuck it, Chodius. Chodius. If you like this song, you will like the Under Oath Screamo Hardcore, or sorry, if you like the song and you like Under Oath Screamo Hardcore, then you should check out the Under Oath cover of this song. It's pretty sick. No thanks. Fuck off. No thank you. Uh, user Juliog Juarez says, wrapped around your finger, What's wrapped around your finger when you enter into a relationship? A wedding ring? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is my favorite, though. User Andrew TE5 says, It is about a master wizard and his apprentice and a magic ring that makes him invisible. He lusts for the power that the ring on his master has. Yes, that is it. That has to be what it's about. I agree. Uh, So anyways, that's wrapped around your finger. Fantastic track. Uh, let's go to the next track. This is Tea in the Sahara. Mm-hmm. The lyrics of Tea in the Sahara were inspired by the Paul Bowles book, The Sheltering Sky. The first section of the book is called Tea in the Sahara. 
In it, the character Port is told the story in which three sisters wait for a prince to join them for tea in the Sahara Desert, but the prince never returns. Sting was a fan of the novel and based the lyrics of the song on the story. Mm. Uh, from Genius.com, the track features a very minimal elements, but still features the police's signature sound, Sting's thumping bass riff, Stuart Copeland's clever hi-hat acrobatics, and Andy Summers' affected guitar providing environment. So, there you go. All right, there you go. Use a real shit face. Yeah. <laughs> song meetings. <laughs> said, T equals, the letter T equals testosterone. These girls are dancing for his pleasure because he's going to pleasure them. The desert and the cup full of sand is just a metaphor for them being dry down there. <laughs> yes. So there you go. Oh my God. These fucking people. So again, on the original LP, this is the closing track, but then uh, yep. on the cassette and CD and later pressings, we get one more track. Let's go to it. Uh, so this is Murder by Numbers. Genius.com says, though originally the B-side to every breath you take, track 11 of 1983 Synchronicity was added to the CD and cassette to pad out the timing. While musically, the track follows a standard lounge jazz formula. The subject matter is anything but. Mm -hmm. Written like a how-to guide on becoming a serial killer, the song takes an unexpected twist at the end. When the narrator suggests becoming an elected official, apparently it's easier and legal to kill scores of people if you're a leader of the land. The lack of yep. faith in politicians is one of Sting's trademarks throughout his career. All right. Uh, user Hot Tampa on songmeanings.com said, Sting gets into how government nonchalantly kills people and the average person just accepts it for collateral damage or whatever. I know not all people do. I digress. Sting is clearly making a political statement here. And suddenly, uh, and suddenly, the mass that mass murder or serial killer may have uh, killed one person, ten people, or even thirty is a mere bag of chips <laughs> compared to the top-level politicians that kill thousands, if not millions, in the same cases. And uh, a bag of chips. but I mean, ultimately, it's just in crooning, right? And uh, that's Murder by Numbers, and that Honestly, is the... that's two weak tracks to end this album. Yeah, I would agree. It uh, just limps home, eh? Yeah, it sure does. I mean, really, for me, with the album songs, uh, throw away uh, Mother, throw away the last two tracks, and I could even do without Oh My God, uh, but the rest of it, to me, is a rip-roar and good time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mother's pretty bad, and, and the last two were pretty boring. I like the rest of it. Uh, let's go to some reviews. Mm -hmm. um, as you'd expect, largely positive reviews. Yes. Um, Allmusic.com, four and a half out of five stars. The Baltimore Sun, five out of five. Rolling Stone gives us four and a half out of five. Uh, they wrote in 1983 about the album. Synchronicity is a work of, daz uh, of dazzling surfaces and glacial shadows. Sunny pop melodies echo with ominous sound effects. A pithy versus deal with doomsday, a battery of rhythms, pop reggae, and African lead a safari into a physical and spiritual <laughs> desert. So 
to Tear in the Sahara, Synchronicity, the police's fifth and finest album is about things ending, the world in peril, the failure of personal relationships and marriage, and the death of God. And then they keep going. Okay. Uh, Robert Criscow of The Village Voice yes. uh, gave on. this one a B plus. Not, not, not high praise. He says, I prefer my musical watersheds juicier than this latest installment in their snazzy pop saga and my rock middle brows zanier or at least nicer. If only the single of the summer, so of course that's every breath you take, <laughs> was a little more ambiguous so we could hear it as a poem of mistrust to the Pope or the Secretary of State. Instead, Sting wears his sexual resentment on the chord changes like a closet American woman fan, reserving the ambiguity for his yes. Jungian conundrums, which I'm sure deserve no better. Best lyrics are Stu's Miss Gurdenko and Andy's Mother, Juiciest chord changes are the single of the summer. All right. So there you go. Dassey. Um, there is a review from The Guardian that I will read. This is from thepolice.com, where they've actually gathered a nice compilation of reviews. Mm -hmm. yeah. For a band rumored to dis dislike each other, uh, to be past their peak and on the verge of breaking up, the police aren't doing too badly. Their new single, the dreadfully simple but dreadfully catchy Every Breath You Take, has cruised effortlessly to number one. And as the band prepare for the start of yet another world tour next month, they've released a fifth album that mixes a few more infuriatingly simple songs with some aggressive and original songs. Uh, cool. I don't know what their rating was there, but it doesn't matter. Uh, let's go to <laughs> uh, let's go to Amazon. Okay, got a couple couple of people commenting here. Uh, user. Finulanu gave it two stars and said last and least for the police. Okay. Whoa, what a bad album. The police who were formerly a respectable little reggae rock band go adult contempt. Every song but one is mellow, harmless and slathered in ambient keyboards. I don't think that that's what most police fans wanted to hear from the group. I, for one, would rather listen to Don't Stand So Close to Me or Message in a Bottle than Mother. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, user Burrito Bro said, two stars, this one not so much. If you want to discover the police, do yourself a favor and check out their first two releases, Atlantos de Moore and Regatta de Blanc. Uh, and uh, let's see, one more here. Three stars, it's the police. He says, it's the police. I bought this when it came out just because it was big at the time. Not a big police fan, never was. It's okay for bringing back some old memories of the time but not my style of music. Okay. Uh, so there you go. That is, oh, one also, one other person gave it three stars and said <laughs> they wanted more hits. <laughs> well, you know, don't we all? Lucky for you, there is a number of Police Greatest Hits albums. So yeah, <laughs> I think you're exactly. going to be okay. The Synchronicity Tour was a 1983-84 concert tour by the Police. During the early dates, the band resided at a mansion in Bridgehampton, New York, and were flown to the concerts. This was the band's final tour as a working unit and one of the highest grossing tours of the 1980s. Uh, there were numerous opening acts, including Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, A Flock of Seagulls, The Fix, Ministry, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Talking Heads. Uh, one show in Toronto, apparently James Brown. I'm just, I'm just thinking about The Fix. Uh-huh, right? Wouldn't that be something? One thing, number. 
of course, the set list at this point is this album followed by a ton of singles from all their other albums. That'd be some big hotness there. Uh, the tour kicks off, and they are already big in uh, July of 1983 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Uh, yeah. They go on to play arenas everywhere. In Montreal, they played, oddly enough, a show on the 2nd of August, 1983, at the Spectrum. So this is a small venue. Yeah. And on uh, this must have been some sort of, like, intimate, like, win tickets kind of thing. Because uh-huh. on the 3rd of August, they then play Olympic Stadium. Nice. They play Olympic, or sorry, the CNE Grandstand in Toronto on August 5th of 1983. They play on August 27th a show at the Winnipeg Arena. Oh, I can only imagine how it sounded. Uh, I'm sure it sounded awful. Bouncing off those fucking concrete walls. Uh, The store wraps, or the the store, the the tour wraps up in Fresno uh, at Ratcliffe Stadium, uh, a stadium I've been to Fresno a number of times, but have not been to Ratcliffe Stadium. Uh, they head over to Europe for a spell. They come back to North America and they're playing venues like the Orange Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, uh, Reunion Arena in Dallas, Kemper Arena at Kansas City. Uh oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, they go back to Europe. They come back to North America. Uh, they do play, uh, most famously, a four show um, stint at Wembley, uh, Wembley Arena in London. Uh, and, uh, they wrap up, uh, in Australia in March of 1984 and, uh, subsequently break up uh, right after they, right after all making all the money. Um, the tour. I do have to mention though, that in 2007, uh, there was a reunion tour by mm-hmm. the police. It marked the 30th, 30th anniversary of their beginning. And at its conclusion <laughs> at the time, it became the third now 11th highest grossing tour of all time. With Yikes. revenues reaching over three hundred and sixty million dollars, my God! So that is insane. The show that I saw them at was on July third, two thousand and seven, at St. Paul, Minnesota, at the XL Energy Center, attended by seventeen thousand one hundred and eighty-five fans, and it grossed two million dollars U.S. And how was it? Ah, uh, it was a sting show playing police songs, so it was kind of okay. all like toned down versions of the police but the percussion was really? yeah but the percussion was uh phenomenal there you go and that is synchronicity and that is the police uh i will ask you first what are your final thoughts all right i like it i'm a little uneven in parts um you can definitely feel that this this is like a final album from a band honestly with some of the inclusions of uh, of some of the tracks but uh i think it's a good listen i would recommend it and uh you know, there's a, there's, you know, you can end at uh, at track nine. <laughs> this is clearly starting that very like that very sting like direction, right? Oh yeah. Like you can That's... see how he has taken over the band. It's essentially a sting album, and Sting's music uh, kind of gets crappier as far as I'm concerned, but sounds very oh, yeah. much like this. Absolutely. Uh, but still I still am... got some monster songs though. Uh, I would agree with some of the people out there who say this isn't their best album. I like some other ones more than this. I, I certainly. Um, other albums are a little more creative uh, yeah. than this one, but at the same time, uh, I understand why this was a, a massive, massive album. I am the opposite of you. I think every breath you take is brilliant. Simple. That's fine. Uh, I don't. I don't fault anybody for thinking that. Hey, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. Uh, but uh, listen, this album mentions Mistopheles, so it gets a thumbs up from me. <laughs> so, anyways, that's all we got. And uh, for next week, do you know what you're doing next week yet? I do not know. 
All right, well, we'll figure it I, out. I, this is the first time I thought of it, so no, I don't know yet. So check out our Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook yeah. we don't use. Go to albumsordead.com. Somewhere we will make a <laughs> yeah, mention of Facebook. <laughs> we'll make mention of what we're doing. And again, we're on Spotify, so give yeah. us a listen there. <laughs> Sounds good. Until next week, I am the Slipman with five eyes or sleep. I am at Megamix.com. We'll see you in a week. Go. Go.